Father, we pray that your word would dwell in us richly as we rejoice in the coming of your son and as we expect him to come again. Lord, please would your word prepare us for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you all managed to get some rest over Thanksgiving um, and that you had some good times with family and friends. Um, Because today we're back for a brand new start. Today is day one. Uh, This is the 1st of December. It's the first Sunday in Advent, um, and that makes it New Year's Day for the church. Our calendar starts right here in Advent. Um, And so what happens now is that we have four Sundays to prepare ourselves for Christmas, for the coming of Jesus. In Advent, we remember the preparations that people made for the first time Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem, as Taylor said, and we also remember that Jesus is coming again soon and that we are a people that's called to be prepared for him. All right, now I don't know about you, um, but whenever I think about needing to be prepared for Jesus to come back, I start to feel a bit stressed and anxious Um, because it's hard enough being ready for Christmas, right? Let alone being ready for Jesus. Um, But as I've been praying and thinking about this recently, the Lord's given me a bit of a different perspective um, because he showed me that when Jesus came the first time, he didn't come as a final exam or a reward for good behavior. Jesus came as a gift, right? He came as a gift to be received, as a perfect solution to our real problem. And what he wanted for people to be ready for him was to be ready to receive him. And I think now that it's pretty much the same for us, that being prepared just means being ready to receive Jesus when he comes back. And so if there is a job to do to make ourselves ready, it's simply a job of opening our hands. Um, So when I was a kid at Christmas or on my birthday, my parents would often say, Johnny, close your eyes and open your hands. Um, And when I did that, they would put into my hands something wonderful, some surprise present. Um, And at the time, I never really wanted to close my eyes, um, but I was always glad that I did. It was always worth it. Um, And so this Advent, I want to think about how we might open our hands Being ready for Jesus to come back looks like waiting with open hands. So it's less about doing more and more about doing less. And the four Advent witnesses uh, give us some great examples of this. So Sarah went through the four witnesses of the patriarchs, the prophets, uh, John the Baptist and Mary. Um, And when we look at their stories, we see that they all had to open their hands. They all had to release something so that they could receive everything that God had in store for them. So Abraham had to open his hands and leave behind the life he knew in order to become the father of many nations. The prophets urged God's people to open their hands and release their idols, their false comfort, so that they could receive God's true comfort. Jonah said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Thank you very much. Then John the Baptist called people to open their hands and lay down their expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like, what they thought they knew about God and about his plans, so that they could receive their true king when he came to them and not reject him. And then finally, Mary was called to open her hands 
and release her own dreams and expectations for her life in order to receive God's new plan for her, which was a plan that ended up bringing her great trouble and pain as well as lasting glory. So all four of these witnesses did a good job at opening their hands when God first called them, but all four had a bit more trouble keeping their hands open until God filled them, but then all four ended up reopening their hands to God by the end of their stories. Hands open, hands closed, hands open. It's a repeated pattern, and God wants open hands. So today, I want to explore that pattern in the life of Abraham. So open your Bibles to Genesis 15. It's very near the beginning, uh, page 10 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 15 on page 10. So Genesis 15 verse 1 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. All right. So that's what we're looking at today. And there are three things I want to notice in this passage. First, how much it cost Abraham to follow God. Second, how much God promised to give him in return. And third, the value of Abraham's faith. So first, how much it cost Abraham to follow God. So the last verse that we just read, verse seven says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And in order for us to understand why that's such a big deal, we need to understand Abraham's world a bit better. It was just so very different from our world today. So think about the world that's outside these walls, the world that we know, 7.7 billion people. With all their noise and activity, speakers playing music, radio stations, TVs showing hundreds of channels across thousands of restaurants, waiting rooms, homes, words being typed and sent around the world, trillions of words every hour, more than you could ever read in a lifetime. While thousands of planes fill our skies and billions of cars crowd the streets, a world that's always moving, always fighting, always busy, and always noisy. But I want to do something a bit like what Sarah did and get a, take a journey on a time machine. I want to turn the clock back to Abraham's time. How would the world change if we did that? And I want to do it slowly, a few years at a time. So first of all, if we went back just 20 years to the year 2000, the Twin Towers would still be standing. The smartphone would no longer exist and we'd all be carrying Nokia flip phones in our pockets. And 1.7 billion people in the world would have disappeared. Back another 50 years to 1950, and we've now lost the internet, 
We call each other on landline phones. We get our news from newspapers. New York City is the largest city in the world, eight million people. And the Empire State Building is the world's tallest building. Back another 50 years to 1900, we lose all the airplanes out of the skies and most of the cars off the roads. We also lose the roads, at least all the asphalt ones. The largest city in the world is now London, England, six million people, and the tallest building is the Eiffel Tower. Uh, so by now, for every five people in the world today, we've lost four of them. And we've only gone back 120 years. We still have nearly 4,000 years to go. So let's speed up a bit. Um, back to 1800, the world's population dips below a billion people for the first time. None of them have ever seen electric light or heard amplified sound. And we can rip out all the world's railways. The largest city is Beijing, China, 1.1 million people. And the tallest building is Lincoln Cathedral. Back to 1000 AD, and only 265 million people live on the whole planet. Baghdad, Iraq, has a million of them and is the world's largest city. And the tallest building is the Great Pyramid of Giza. Back to 500 AD, each person living on Earth has on average about one square mile of land mass to themselves now. Today we have 39 people per square mile. Let's keep going back. 1 AD, Jesus is in elementary school. And Rome is the last city on earth to have a million people. 500 more years and Babylon, Iraq, rules the world with 200,000 people. It's about the size of Tallahassee. Back another 500 years, it's now 1000 BC. Thebes in Egypt is a mega city with just 100,000 people. And the Great Pyramid is still the world's tallest building. And to get back to Abraham, we need to go another thousand years again, to a time when just 27 million people lived on the whole planet. It's about the same number that currently live in Shanghai. <clears throat> in, in Abraham's time, there was one person for every 7.3 square miles of planet. And the world's largest city was Ur of the Chaldeans, with about 65,000 people. So it was about one-third of the size of Tallahassee today, and it was the largest city on Earth. Ur was also the wealthiest city on Earth, bustling with trade, flowing with gold, and full of grand and glorious architecture. And nearby to other prosperous Mesopotamian cities like Erech and Susa and Babylon. So at Abraham's time, Ur would have felt like the center of the world, right? The center of a world where you couldn't stray very far from the center without finding yourself in a dangerous, empty, uninhabited, seemingly endless desert. So if you had the good fortune to be born here, why would you leave? Everything's here and there's nothing out there but lonely death. I can't imagine anyone wanting to leave, but that's exactly what God called Abraham to do. Leave your country and your kindred and your father's house. In other words, he had to leave behind all the life he had ever known for a very uncertain future. That's how much it cost Abraham to follow God. He had to essentially become a man with empty hands. But he didn't do it for no reason. He did it for a very, very big promise. And that's the second thing I want to notice in his story. So uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 15. 
Uh, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So the Lord says, first, I am your shield. That means a military defense. Abraham had just left behind the security of Ur, but the Lord promises to be his security instead. And then on top of that, he says, I am your reward. Um, although your reward shall be very great. That word for reward means salary, wages, or compensation. And very great is incredibly emphatic. It means the reward's going to be massive. Um, so what's the nature of Abraham's reward? Uh, it all centers around a son. It starts with a son. And Abraham is most interested in the part about becoming a great nation because he responds to God in verse 2 by saying, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So we see that in his eyes, the whole promise falls apart without a son. The reward, the gift that Abraham most wanted in all the world was children, was descendants. And I think some of us might be familiar with that desire. If you're an adult, you've probably experienced some level of desire to have children. If you're married and you don't have kids yet, you might be experiencing the desire for children very strongly. I've known some couples who wanted children more than anything. And it became their strongest heart's desire and their main prayer request. But I doubt that even these couples want children as much as Abraham wanted children. Because he lived in a world that wasn't even close to being overpopulated. A world where people meant survival. People meant life. And the idea of unemployment was unimaginable. Healthy births were the high point of every year. And on top of that, it was a culture where the primary social currency was honor, and childlessness in a marriage was a great source of shame. Fruitfulness was what was praised and honored, and the most revered celebrities of the day were the founders of nations. So it was men like Egypt and Canaan and Nimrod who founded Babylon and Nineveh. Those were the great celebrities. So think about who we might look back on as the greatest people who've ever lived. You might pick someone like a world-changing scientist like Albert Einstein or Marie Curie or an inventor like the Wright brothers or Thomas Edison or maybe a politician like Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela. So think about the top tier Time magazine, who's who. Not the temporary daytime TV celebrities, but the real giants who left the world better than they found it. And for Abraham, all of those people were nation builders. So when God promised to make him a great nation, God was offering him the best life he could imagine. So listen again to the promise that God made him starting in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And that is such a big promise and so profoundly meaningful to a man in Abraham's position. And it's the sheer size of that promise that motivated Abraham to leave Ur behind. He opened his hands and he left behind everything and everyone he'd ever known in order to take hold of something so much bigger and so much better. And that is also true for everyone 
God calls to follow him. So God never calls someone to just give up what you have and be miserable. He calls us to give up what we have because he wants to give us something better. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that's what we see Abraham doing. He sold everything else to buy this, and his life is our model. So we are not expected to give up what we have in our hands until we see that there's an opportunity for something much better. But once we do see that, we throw out all the old stuff happily. Uh, Believing that God rewards his people is a good thing, and it's part of our faith in him. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe... Two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Isn't that interesting? Uh, That might sound like a selfish motivation for seeking God, for the reward, (laughs) but it's a motivation that the Bible itself consistently holds out to us. Um, And it says there in Hebrews that if we don't believe God's going to reward us for seeking after him, then it's questionable whether we really have any faith in God at all. We need to believe that God has big things in store for us. Abraham did, and it was greatly to his credit. So first, we saw how much it cost Abraham to follow God. Second, how much God promised him in return. And now third, we see the value of Abraham's faith. Verse 6 of Genesis 15 is one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament. It says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The whole of Romans chapter 4 is Paul's meditation on this one verse. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The word for believed here in Genesis is the Hebrew word aman. And it's related to our word amen. It means believe, trust, agree, verify or firmly establish. In other words, it means being sure. Abraham was sure that God would do what he promised, even though it was such a big promise. And even though his circumstances suggested that it was impossible, he and Sarah were childless and and they were past the age of childbearing. And his certainty is held up in the New Testament as the model of faith. So we now know that God can do impossible things. We have plenty of stories we can read in the Bible and plenty of testimonies to hear from our Christian friends. But Abraham had none of those things to help him. And yet he still believed God without any history or any testimony. And this is a real high point in Abraham's story. It's the main reason Paul looks to him as the father of faith in Romans chapter 4. And Paul writes there, In hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. 
So that's really incredible faith on Abraham's part. And when God saw that, he counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Such an incredible thing. Uh, the, word, the Hebrew word for counted there means reckoned, considered, or imputed. It speaks of an unmerited gift, and it has nothing at all to do with payment or reward. So again, Paul talks about this in Romans 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work but believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, what we're seeing here in the very first book of the Bible, in the life of the founding father of the people of God, is justification by grace through faith. Right? It's right here in Genesis chapter 15. That means that people are only made right with God on the basis of God's kindness when we believe in him. Abraham was counted righteous by his faith in God's promise. And then Paul concludes at the end of Romans 4, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Abraham was forgiven and counted righteous because of his faith in God. And so are we. Specifically because we believe that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again. So if you want to know how to be forgiven and made right with God, the answer's right here. Anyone who believes and puts their faith in Jesus is counted righteous. But it's important to add that faith is not just the way we begin our relationship with God, it's also the way that we go on with it. And forgiveness isn't something we only need once, it's something we keep on needing. And we can see those things being true when we look at the rest of Abraham's life. Because what happens in the rest of Genesis 15 is that God makes a covenant with Abraham, a lasting promise, a contract, a bit like marriage. And then in the very next chapter in Genesis 16, Abraham blows it. He really blows his life. He doesn't wait for God's promised son, but instead he has a son with his wife's servant girl, Hagar. So Abraham took matters into his own hands. He closed his hands and his impatience had disastrous consequences. God ended up having mercy on Hagar and blessing her son Ishmael. And God made him into a great nation too. But the people of Ishmael were a constant thorn in the side to the people of Israel for centuries to come. All because Abraham acted out of anxiety and not out of faith. So Abraham blew it, but God didn't give up on him. There was more grace. There were other chances to have faith. God still gave Abraham a son from his own body through his own wife, Sarah. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And God still blessed that son and made him a great nation as he had promised. A nation that still exists to this day. And then later, God gave Abraham the opportunity to recommit himself to their covenant and to open his hands again. So this came in Genesis 22, when God called Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And what we see there is Abraham doing it obediently with a trusting heart, not holding on to what he thought he needed, but trusting God to provide in his own way and in his own time. So Abraham died with his hands open. And we learn from his life that we do not survive on the strength of our own faith, but on the strength of God's faithfulness to us. There's always more grace. 
Praise the Lord. So we saw first how much it cost Abraham to follow God. Second, how much God promised him in return. And third, we see the we saw the value of Abraham's faith. It was a faith that wasn't always able to keep its hands open, but it did choose God in the beginning and in the end. So now in response this morning, how is the Lord calling us to open our hands? I don't know where you are in your journey right now. Maybe you're still in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the place where you were born. And there are precious things in your life that you've never sold so that you can buy the pearl of great price. And if that's true, then maybe it's time to sell them. You will sell them when you realize how much more is on offer for you. How much more God promises to give you in their place. Eternal life and a share in the inheritance of the earth. But he can't give you those things while your hands are full. Or maybe you left uh, long ago, but now you've grown tired of waiting for God and you've gone to bed with Hagar. Opening our hands in the first place is hard, but sometimes keeping them open while we wait for God to fill them is even harder. Perhaps the Lord is showing you this morning that the openness and availability you once had toward him has gotten cluttered up with other cares and anxieties or other treasures you want to take hold of while you try to keep following him. But friends, that can't be done. It's not the way God works. We need to come to him with empty hands and receive only from him in his way and in his timing. And he usually makes us wait much longer than we think possible. But we can't chase the world and the kingdom at the same time. In the end, we will not find either and we'll tear ourselves apart with the stress and anxiety of trying to serve two masters. One of my seminary professors said, there is no more miserable creature than a disobedient Christian. So if that's what you're trying to be, then maybe the Lord's word for you today is to send Hagar away. Or maybe there's another way that we can all apply this teaching this morning. And that's to open our hands to leave space in our schedules, especially as this year finishes. So we all know that December tends to be crazy. Um, I expect that your calendar looks like mine. You can't imagine adding a single thing before January. And I really don't want to try to add anything. Instead, I really want to give you the freedom to subtract. Because I think you and I both know that the most precious and important thing about this next month is the opportunity to make ourselves ready for Jesus. (coughs) So do the events on our calendars line up with that priority? When we look at the whole picture, will this sum of parties, concerts, school performances, shows, traditions and services add up to a heart that's ready to receive the Lord? And if not, then what can we cut? What would it look like if we, if we refused to allow our office or our family or our children's school to dictate what we do with our time? Is it true that we only serve one master, that we only answer to one master who's only asking that we be ready to receive him with open hands? Amen.